friends and welcome to 40,000 Steps Radio. I'm your host Christopher Heimerman and I am not a licensed healthcare professional. Not a doctor, not a counselor. No, I'm a guy with 987 days of sobriety and I'm a guy with the gumption to put his story out there. Talk about putting your story out there. My guest, Steve Andrzejewski, came on the podcast to talk about the tragic loss of his son Ryan. Ryan was 20 years old. He was an incredibly empathetic soul, a beautiful soul who helped so very many people. And Steve came on the podcast to celebrate him. That's really what we focus on here, but also to create a safe space for people to grieve and to learn so that maybe it'll offer people the opportunity to reach out for help if they're struggling. I mean, isn't that what we do here? So I'm so grateful to Steve for coming on the podcast. I'm grateful to all of you for being here. I'm looking out the window. It is about 30 below with the wind chill. Nonetheless, we can always run the doors. It's a great day to get our 40,000 steps in. So let's get it. Okay, so this past October, I was at a local park in town working with the uh, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention during their Out of the Darkness walk. And if you're unfamiliar with these, these are such beautiful, heartbreaking events where folks from the community and, and neighboring communities take part in these walks. It's a, it's a one-mile walk uh, during which we raise awareness for suicide prevention. And people come together, they grieve, they cry, they laugh, you know, they, 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 they learn about each other and they find out that they're not alone in this fight. It's such a beautiful reminder that we are never alone in our fight. So I met Steve and his crew, I don't know, it was about 20 people strong. And <laughs> I'm out there as the guy, the former journalist who had volunteered to ask folks if they would be willing to come on camera and talk about their loved ones, which look, I, like I said, as a reporter, I'm used to walking up to a person and, and, and trying to connect with them during one of the hardest days of their life and getting them to talk about it. And, you know, here's why I'm comfortable doing that difficult as it is, is because when somebody is willing to open up the way that Steve did on this podcast, those raw emotions, that heartbreak is so visceral and so deep that people who have gone through it can connect with it and not feel so alone. I cannot begin to comprehend what it would be like to lose a child, to lose a 20-year-old child and a beautiful soul like Ryan, somebody whose life mission was to help people. No parent should have to endure that sort of pain. And, and by coming on this podcast and opening up about it and by driving home the importance of being engaged with each other, perhaps thanks to Steve, fewer people might have to endure that pain. That's sort of 
unfathomable pain. Now, full disclosure, Steve and his crew, they thought it over and, and they decided not to let me stick a camera in their face. But I, I did. I met up with Steve afterward and we talked about his business, Lynn Health, and the way that they are approaching healthcare from the standpoint of helping people with multiple chronic conditions. And he really leaned on this, of course, you know, given the top of the event and what his family has been through, he really leaned on the need for treating behavioral health as a chronic condition, the same way that we look at cancer, diabetes, and, you know, while we're at it, not just, you know, mental health and behavioral health, but food insecurity, you know, the sort of things that are, that are holding folks back and leading to other conditions. So Steve and I sidebarred and, you know, he said that he would come on the podcast. He and I met a few weeks after that, got to know each other. And man, this guy, this is a guy who's been through it and he gets it and he's living it every day. One thing that I found really fascinating during our conversation, I just got done reading uh, a biography of one of my favorite musicians, Elliot Smith, who we lost to suicide in 2003. And this biographer has continued, you know, he's trying to get to know Elliot through interviews, through like found writings of his. And, you know, as he describes it sort of in the, uh, in the, the afterward, he felt as though he got to know Elliot in a very intimate way, even though, even after his passing. And Steve talked about how they continue to learn from Ryan after we lost him through his writings, through art and the sort of things that the sort of things that he and his family hadn't seen before they lost him. And they're not wasting that. They are sharing their story. They're taking part in events like the out of the darkness walk. And Steve is working hard through Lynn health to make sure that when folks reach out and they're under duress, that they are immediately connected to resources to get help because I've had people on the podcast who have reached out to hotlines and been put on hold and been cut off. I had to wait three days to get into rehab, even though I went to the ER and I all but begged and pleaded to just take me to rehab already. It is incredibly important that when people do conjure up the bravery to ask for help, that they can immediately get that help. In that spirit, I want to take a moment and give the old cap tip to the place where I went through rehab. It's a partner of the podcast, Gateway Foundation in Aurora, Illinois. If drugs or alcohol are starting to take over your life, it's time to get honest with yourself and get help. These days, many people are at home or out of work and the temptation to turn to alcohol and drugs to cope with stress and anxiety is stronger than ever before, right? Stop using now before it's too late. Gateway Foundation is here for you and your family with life-saving inpatient as well as virtual programs so you can access the help you need from the privacy of your own home. Don't wait to get help that you or a loved one needs. Most insurance plans are accepted. Call Gateway Foundation now at 877-505-HOPE. That's 877-505-4673 to schedule a free confidential consultation or you can visit gatewayfoundation.org and get the help that you need today. All right, gang, let's get into this. Prepare to laugh to cry, and to learn. 
This is my conversation with a dear friend of mine, Steve Andrzejewski. Ooh, I like that beanie. I will send you one. I got uh, plenty of supply in the basement. I'll do a swap with you. I'll send you a... <laughs> You've got the mug too. We'll do a swap. I've got my 40,000 steps mug. I've got a t-shirt. So we'll we'll cross-pollinate. <laughs> that sounds like a plan. I'm, I'm going to assume that you didn't get out this morning for a run with the doggo, did you? Today was the first day in probably three years that I did not go. Uh, part really? of it, though, is because right after... Right after this, I need to go to a uh, to the airport. Well, that was going to be my next question. Where are you heading to today? Seattle. A business or leisure? Mostly business. I am going to grab dinner with some family tonight that I've not seen for about five years. So I'm really looking forward to that. So how did Kaya, How did she take it this morning that you guys didn't get out? She was looking at me a little odd, like this is not normal routine. Um, so maybe I'll try to get a decent walk-in with her before I have to head out to O'Hare. Got it. Got it. Yeah. My, uh, at any given moment now, my, my Husky could start barking at any point that she wants to go outside. So if that happens, bear with me. And at that point, of course, I'll let her outside. And, you know, usually she'll be out there for hours at a time, regardless of the weather. But these past two days, it's 15, 20 minutes. And and she was even for a Husky, it's freaking cold out there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mine was literally laying in the yard this morning. Uh, for about 20 or 30 minutes. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> uh, what Luna will do is she'll be like bouncing around out there, like looking around. I'll go out to be like, do you want to come in the house? And I, I'll do that. And she'll just like lie down on the ground. Like, no, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> it's, the, it's the weirdest thing. I can appreciate it though. I personally enjoy the cold weather. I think it's a nice break from being I love the feel on your face. I love breathing in the cold air. It's, uh, as we've talked about, it's, it's 100% therapy, uh, I think, for folks like you and me. And I, I'm going to regret not going this morning when I'm sitting on the plane for four hours, I can tell you that. I've got my duffel packed that after we wrap up here today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to head to the gym. I've, I've gotten into swimming, which my, my listeners are probably getting tired of hearing about, but I mean, you talk about a therapeutic effect and, uh, and really uh, an exercise that demands that you be present or, yep. or you could drown <laughs> if, if, if you don't, if, if you don't, you know, focus on your breathing and keep things in rhythm and under control. Cause I'm kind of building it from square one. So I'm just learning the breathing stuff and I feel like I'm carrying it into everyday life, which is pretty neat. Well, I appreciate you sneaking this in before you got to catch a flight. I appreciate the opportunity. Cheers. You and I first crossed paths at Hopkins Park here here in town at the Out of the Darkness Walk. And you had a posse, an absolute group of people who were out there in the tie-dyed shirts, friends, family of yours, and friends of Ryan's. Um, you've, you've done those a couple of times, right? The Out of the Darkness Walks? Uh, we have, and we've done other more national walks as well uh, with the organization. So it's something that, you know, as a family can be difficult because it's like ripping the Band-Aid off, Chris, as you know. But it's nice to get everybody together. And once you get past the emotions of the day, it's nice to laugh and, and kind of rehash all the wonderful memories 
and good that Ryan left behind. So it's it's mixed feelings, but by the end of the day, you're you're very grateful and happy that you chose to do it. You know, I was working with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention that morning, and I was trying to get some testimonials from folks, which is freaking, it's hard, you know, cold walking up to people and asking them to talk about it. Because folks just being there, it's a show of bravery and a show of love for those that we've lost. Now, I, I want to get into Ryan's story here in a, in a little bit. We're going to talk about what made Ryan amazing. That's, that's something I really want to focus on. I, you know, I, I took a moment and I read his obituary and down toward the bottom, you know, you always hear about like in lieu of flowers, you can donate to this or memorials can be made this way. And there's a mention in there about contributing to organizations that work in suicide prevention. There had to have been really kind of a circling of the wagons of the family to even just like put that in the obituary. What, what, what was that like? Yeah, the obituaries are tough. So there was a lot of conversation and by a lot hours, uh, spending a lot of time, mostly with my immediate family, my other three children and my wife, and trying to piece together something that would be both meaningful, uh, of course, but also representative of Ryan. Um, he was a wonderful soul, and, and we'll get into that here in a little bit. So we probably had three or four different iterations of that obituary, and even for the service cards, you know, the, the little memorial cards you hand out, we couldn't come up with one that we felt um, encapsulated Ryan and all of his different uh, peer groups, whether it be family or friends or um, some of the fire department folks he was working with at Wabanzi. So we actually came up with two cards, one that was more uh, family-facing, uh, public-facing, that kind of followed social norms. And one was written, um, I'll say, in the words and language that Ryan would have chosen to use um, as a message to those that he chose to leave behind. And so it was a little bit more direct, a little bit more perhaps comedic, and in line with how he would have asked uh, primarily his friends and, and, of course, us close family members to, to remember him. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, remembering the good times, keeping life simple, you know, spending time with friends and family. And um, it was not easy to do. Uh, there was a lot of emotions attached to both of those and as well as the obituary. But we really felt compelled to make sure that we were addressing uh, very personally uh, the different types of groups that Ryan would interact with on a daily basis. And we chose to do that, quite frankly, because he got along with everybody. Uh, he was one of those you know, individuals that um, recognized when others were in pain or hurting or challenged with something that life uh, has, had presented to them. And he always took the time, even during his low times, he always mustered up the energy to put his arm around somebody, ask a question about how he was feeling, how he could help. And uh, so anyways, we wanted to make sure that we captured um, all of those different groups uh, and different ages that he dealt with and interacted with, quite frankly, on a daily basis. To kind of take the, the further step and look, this is an armchair expert with Dak Shepard. I, I don't have <laughs> I don't have that sort of reach, but you know, here you are on a podcast talking about it. That 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 can't be easy, or maybe 
I, I mean, have you reached a point where it's easier or that you've maybe seen some evidence of the profound effect that it can have when you do share that personal story? Yeah, I, I, it's not easy, Chris. I mean, I, I'm, I, could, I could actually, if I allowed myself to, start to get pretty emotional. But I think it's an important conversation to have. There, there's too many people of all age, all backgrounds, uh, all races, dealing with very similar issues um, that unfortunately got Ryan to a point where he made this, the decision that he did. So I, it is therapeutic on some level. If I had a choice most days, Chris, I would probably choose, if I'm being honest, not to. However, having said that, after having conversations like this, I'm always tremendously grateful um, that the conversation was had because I think every time myself or my wife or others in our family have this type of conversation, hopefully it help others, uh, helps others, number one. And number two, I think it provides another layer over that wound that allows us to have conversations more readily. You know, the first 17 or 18 months thinking back, um, I couldn't control the emotions. Uh, and so as soon as somebody would ask, I would immediately go back to that day, to that night, to all the questions that we all have following an event like that. Um, and it was, it was a very difficult time uh, in our lives because not controlling anything can be difficult, but when it comes to the loss of a son or any loved one for that matter, it's just, it's a complex uh, issue and situation. And as I think I've shared with you, perhaps even at the walk, the most exhausting component of conversations early on were being hyper aware, Chris, of how others were feeling in the moment when they mm -hmm. wanted to address the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. um, not to say, not knowing necessarily how to ask a certain question. And so my wife and I became very good at diffusing those situations and being proactive and redirecting the tone or the direction of a conversation to let that individual off the hook and know that, you know, we recognize this is uncomfortable for you. We recognize there's nothing you can say that necessarily will help, but just you being here um, and, and hinting towards uh, being concerned and interested um, directly or indirectly was enough for us. And we just needed to know that people were there for us. We had to work through grief in our own way. It's been a heck of a journey, uh, yeah. certainly to this point. You know, you use the word exhausting. And it's funny, that was the word that I was kind of, that was rattling around my head when you were mentioning Ryan's character makeup and how empathetic of a soul he was, how, how deeply he felt everybody else's highs and lows. That, I mean, you and I can speak from experience. That is exhausting that we not only have our own personal feelings and emotions, but we, we ride the roller coaster with, with everybody else. And it's such a beautifully tragic, uh, character trait sometimes. Uh, so let's, I mean, let's do it. Let's, let's get into Ryan's story. Let's, let's celebrate him. You, I, the, the firefighting, where, where did that come from? Did this passion to become a firefighter and where, where was he at with his journey? I had, I had dabbled in a similar profession very early on in my career. And um, Ryan and I were similar in a lot of ways. Uh, one is the, the chase and the need and the the interest in adrenaline. And certainly firefighting um, was something that Ryan 
number one, was interested in because he always had a focus on helping people. Right, and right. obviously, fire have a tendency to do that. But Ryan also, given some of his behavioral health struggles, uh, ADHD and those types of things, which led to a lot of the anxiety, depression, and other things that were byproducts of that, he was not good. I shouldn't say he was not good. He was challenged at sitting down for any extended period of time and reading or writing or doing the traditional schoolwork type stuff. So for Ryan, he needed an alternate avenue. And for him, it was the pursuit of, of EMT and firefighting uh, here at a local uh, junior college. And he was, you know, good at it, uh, made some great friends doing it that actually still come around today from time to time. And it's what he wanted to pursue. And he had actually left where we live now in Sugar Grove and moved to Missouri, Springfield, Missouri, where we had lived prior many, many years ago and was living with some friends at the time and, and waiting to hear about job opportunities down there from a few different fire departments. So he was chasing his dream uh, at the time and uh, helping people was what he lived for. It got to a point, uh, unfortunately, towards the end where he, I think, ran out of energy uh, and empathy and got to a point where he had nothing left to give, yeah. at least um, in his mind. And uh, that's kind of when you know, the wheels came off and, and decisions were made. Well, he set a certain level of expectation for himself in being other people's confidant, savior mm -hmm. in some instances, to where when he ran out of gas and he felt insufficient, I mean, we, we've, I think you and I have probably been there on some level where and we, in, in some shape or form, you know, we feel disappointed with ourselves that we don't have the reserves to help others. But did you have any early indicators of when he was a kid? Because I can look back and laugh on, on some of the times that like that, that my empathy was so glaring. And, and even to my parents must have been like, uh oh, <laughs> this kid's going to take on more, more than than maybe he can choose someday. Uh, you know, what, what was Ryan like as a kid? Did you see evidence early that he lived to help people? Oh, 100%. I mean, I can share infinite stories when Ryan was young of him standing up to bullies on buses, you know, headed to or from school, um, kind of standing shoulder to shoulder with those that struggled with um, uh, learning disabilities or other physical traits that unfortunately sometimes uh, other kids will take advantage of. Um, and so Ryan, I remember vividly at a dinner one time, uh, he came home and said, you know, so-and-so has been bothering so-and-so for an extended period of time. And he's like, Dad, what do I do if it gets physical? I mean, what if this individual won't stop what he's doing? And I said, Ryan, you have my, you have my approval that if it's in the defense of somebody that can't defend themselves to do what you feel is right. And I will support you 100%. Here's what I'm curious about. This ever uh, land him or, or you in the principal's office? <laughs> no, thank God it did not. Um, and I certainly recognize, you know, that level of either acceptance or promotion perhaps could be viewed the wrong way. Um, but I made it also abundantly clear to Ryan that any action, if ever needed to be taken, was purely to be done in a defense mode, yeah. not yeah. in an aviation mode. Um, the latter would have consequences that, you know, he would not enjoy. So those were the types of thoughts that Ryan had. How can he protect and help others? There's 
Again, infinite stories of Ryan helping others. Um, once he hit eighth grade and into high school, um, that were also dealing with mental health struggles, contemplated uh, ultimately and ironically what Ryan chose to do. Um, but he actually took folks to get tattoos of the suicide prevention semicolon and actually saved the lives of a couple of other people by investing the time, showing his love, empathy, and compassion. I remember the first time I got a tattoo, it didn't go over very well with mom and dad. What about in your case? <laughs> you know, for us, and I will say growing up, I would have had the same response for my folks. Um, Ryan, number one, Ryan was, was a unique soul. Um, he, he wanted to live life to the fullest. And to us, a tattoo, specifically one that represented his desire to help others in difficult situations, uh, would always get a thumbs up for us. So in number two, I think we live in different times. You know, a meaningful piece of artwork on somebody's uh, body when, when they choose to do so personally is, is kind of hard for the rest of us perhaps to argue against. So I certainly understand your folks' position. That, that would have been my <laughs> folks' position uh, as well. But for Ryan, we kind of let him go down that path because he was helping so many people. He ever strong arm you into a parlor and uh, convince you to get one? During the time, no, but I have nine tattoos now. Uh, most of them extremely personal and representative of Ryan or things that he did uh, or said that continue to have impact on how I live my life today. I, do, do you mind sharing what, I mean, this is, this is an audio podcast, so, mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. it'd only be my benefit. Do, do you want to describe a couple of them? Yeah, so I have, I have some that, that are words, if not now, when. You know, Ryan lived in the moment uh, for mm -hmm. today, and he loved to live that way. Um, the energy and the passion that he exuded on a daily basis um, was almost like, you know, an eight or nine or 10-year-old, where everything is new, exciting, refreshing, energetic, filled with adrenaline. Ryan lived every day like that. So that's a reminder to me that if there's things I want to do or my family wants to do, what are, what are you waiting for? Um, that's one. I have one on my arm. He, he loved rock climbing. Uh, he did it with a number of different friends. And so I have a carabiner on my arm uh, with his oh, initials nice. in, in the middle of it, uh, just as, as kind of a reminder. Um, I also now have the suicide prevention semicolon uh, in the same spot. Uh, and in fact, my daughter Megan and I got that together shortly after uh, we lost Ryan. Um, I have a compass, a very large compass on my chest, uh, just a reminder to stay true um, to the direction that you want to go uh, and explore. As we've shared, we're both big outdoor people. And so that is a constant reminder for me, uh, not just to pursue uh, what is needed and interesting for myself and my family, uh, but to get outside more. And that's my therapy time, as we've talked about uh, many times. I have one on my leg. So before he passed, shortly before he passed, he pushed mom and dad and his sisters, uh, Ellie and Megan, um, to consider getting a bigger dog. Uh, at the time, we had two small dogs. And so we ended up getting a husky, Kaya, uh, who I run with every day, and we've shared stories about and so I have an actual picture of her on one of my calves. And that has a couple different meanings to me. It was Ryan's idea, number one. So that has a, a lot of personal meaning. Uh, and arguably, that dog has saved my life personally uh, over the past three years. You know, literally getting out every day 
uh, irregardless of weather, today being the exception, uh, given it was close to minus 30 this morning. Um, <laughs> but that's my time to, to be outside, usually before folks are even up, um, to cry, to yell, uh, and just to run and have that, that time in my mind where I can better control where it decides to go and when. And so it's really a reflection time for me. Uh, fitness, health has become a, a byproduct of that, but really it's for what sits on top of my shoulders. And I've been asked many times to join and run with other groups daily, and I've turned those down universally, not because I don't enjoy the other people, mm -hmm. most of them are friends, but because that now has become a habit and an event that I thoroughly enjoy doing alone with the dog. And so I will continue to do that going forward. Was Ryan athletic? Was he into sports at all? Obviously, if he was going to be a firefighter, there had to be some physical fitness there. He was fit. Uh, he was a big skateboarder for most of his life. Um, some, of, some of the stuff he could do on a skateboard, um, I don't understand how it's done, quite frankly, the physics behind it. <laughs> but, but he was amazing. And there's a lot of video and pictures of Ryan actually helping the younger generation behind him at different skate parks, uh, parks learn how to do different tricks. Um, in fact, one of those parks has a memorial to Ryan, uh, a nice plaque uh, on one of the ramps there in North Aurora. And uh, I go to visit that every now and again. We, we continue to live with so much that we have learned both while he was here and certainly had, have come to know after he left. Some of his writings, some of his artwork. Um, and again, uh, those can be difficult to read and look at. But once you get past that initial emotion, there's learnings, there's teachings, there's, there's gifts, quite frankly, um, in so much of what he left behind. And so we try to share that to the extent we can. Did Ryan ever run with you? And did you run before before we lost Ryan? On and off, uh, I, I've always been into fitness, weights, and played soccer forever, and wrestled and baseball and all that. Um, I probably started running, and you know whether this is ironic or divine intervention, um, I started running religiously. I would say about four months before he passed, so it was almost like, depending on people's belief system that I was being prepared for something. And so those three yeah. or four months, I started to develop a habit, a pattern. And it was the, well, it was, honestly, it was the only thing that got me through um, those first three to six months after all of this played out. Yeah, see, you had that. You, you, it's interesting that you had a base as a runner where it was there and available to you as, as a vehicle in grief and in grieving. Uh, just to explore it a little bit with, with Kaya, do you ever get the feeling that as she's running next to you, that, that, that there's something more to that, given the fact that it was Ryan is the person who brought Kaya into your life? All the time. I mean, I, I don't even know where to start with that. But, you know, there's been times on the trail, Chris, where, you know, you have that breakdown moment and it's like the dog senses those emotions, right? And she'll come up and just sit there, kind of stare. And, you know, that's a reminder. It's a trigger. Sorry. Yeah. It's okay. You know, this, this is a safe space. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm very heartened that, that, 
that you're very much in touch with your emotions. Like you said, you played soccer, you're an athlete, you're an incredibly successful person. And a lot of folks get the impression that folks like you are bulletproof. Do you know what I mean? Somebody who's, who's immensely successful. I do. It's, um, that's been an interesting conversation within the working world, you know, corporate America, where there are certain expectations, Chris, to your point. And what I thoroughly enjoy is when people reach out and ask the questions, you start to have the serious conversation and the conversation goes from surface to a little bit deeper. And I love having the ability to connect with somebody and seeing it in their eyes that, you know what, it's okay to not feel okay. It's okay to, to tear up. It's okay to have emotions. All of that is driven by love and loss, quite frankly. And I think if we can get others to recognize that human fact, that emotions are real, keeping them in, bottling them up, turning that, that grief into something uh, potentially equally dangerous, whether it's different addictions or where you choose to invest your time to, to numb that pain, it's just making the situation worse. And so... I think that's vitally important. I can't tell you how many times I've heard the discussion or the comment that, well, you know, at least Ryan isn't in pain anymore. Mm. And it's an interesting comment. It's a fair comment. I know people are trying to provide perhaps solace and comfort, but the pain's not gone. You know this, Chris. It's just been transferred to other people. And so right. our goal as a family is to in our own little way, find a way to break that chain. I don't want people to glorify what happened and what Ryan chose to do. It's not the end of his pain or his perceived discomfort, real or perceived at the time, but it's just, it passes on now to multiple other people. And, you know, I think getting them to think differently about a decision like that, an act like that, and what it does or doesn't do is vitally important if we're going to change the narrative nationally. And there's a lot of great organizations working on this, as you know. Um, it's one of the big focuses of my startup organization, Lynn Health, and making sure that people not just have access to different types of care, but really focused on the behavioral health struggles that people are facing. Statistically speaking, those that are identifying with behavioral health struggles has tripled over the past two to three years. That's alarming. Um, and mm. it should be forever because it has an impact on them, on their families, on their jobs, and all of the other uh, medical chronic conditions perhaps that they're dealing with. Can you see a silver lining to this though? This is something that I'm, that I'm embracing and seeing as a positive that so often when we talk about data, like these, as, as the numbers go up, there's a case to be made for the fact that they're being reported and they're being identified. So I think there's something to be said for the fact that generations before us, people were suffering. Now we just know about it. It's being brought to light. And you have organizations like Lynn Hell that are identifying those and connecting people with resources. So yeah, it's, it's devastating to think about the numbers, but the reason why we have those numbers is because we can talk about these things. So I, I, th I think that there's a silver lining to be grabbed onto there. A hundred percent. I think 
I think knowledge can be power when it's identified and served uh, the right way. So from that aspect, I applaud the benefits and the value of things like social media news outlets for being comfortable and able and willing um, to share those types of stats. However, I also do have concerns about things like social media and the impact it has on young minds. Um, it was oh, yeah. <laughs> clearly a contributing factor towards some of Ryan's personal struggles and issues. You know, when you and I grew up, Chris, we could go to school and if we had an issue with somebody or something, you could at least forget about it at three o'clock. Yeah. Now yep. these kids are reviewing that issue 24 seven um, from their phone, from their computer. And so they never get a chance to, to decompress, to relax. And, you know, I think we have a lot of kids and I'm not a clinician uh, just to be fair, but I, it feels like we have a lot of kids in a consistent fight or flight mode. It's driving, um, and has been driving a huge escalation in the number of uh, patients here in the United States taking some form of prescriptions. And I, and Ryan was one of them. And I think prescriptions can serve a vital role uh, in helping somebody get past the short-term challenge. But I don't think for many prescriptions to numb the pain or numb their feelings doesn't feel like a long-term solution for me because that causes other downstream impacts on their diet, on their uh, levels of energy or lethargy, um, how they interact with other people. And that prevents them in some cases, at least in my humble opinion, um, of working through the issues that put them in that box. And that's creating a lot of challenges today. You know, I, I couldn't agree more. And this is where in a short, in a little while here, we're going to get into talking about Lynn Health, which which just went public, which has got to be incredibly exciting for you. Uh, but you know what you what you're doing, and what any healthcare system, insurance company, etc., is doing is focusing on multimodality and taking care of people holistically. So that I'm on three medications. And I also see my counselor. I see my psychiatrist to make sure that they're working. I exercise like it's a program. It, like it takes a village for somebody to live their very best life. So I can certainly appreciate that. Like we can't just sling a prescription at somebody and say, good luck, you know, good luck out there, especially, especially when your, your body adapts to them and they're not as effective as well. That's right. Uh, now I, I, I want to make, I, I want to make sure that we don't get away from this because I, Ryan has three siblings. So as you bring up the conversation about the, the trappings of social media, are, are they older siblings, younger siblings? Um, one is older, two are younger. I, I can't help but, and I don't mean to like drive home like gender, no. gender roles and stereotypes, but mm -hmm. he, he has two sisters. I have two eight-year-old daughters. And when we talk about social media... I feel like it is absolutely brutal for women and, and, and girls. How do you manage that? Maybe this is me asking for some free advice as somebody who's, who's, <laughs> who's, who's, who's had teenagers. And what can I do? How can I have those conversations? Because I'm sure you figured it out, right? No. 
No, it's a, <laughs> it's a very difficult discussion um, and challenge in our society. I think part of the problem, if I'm honest, is driven by parents. We are all very busy. We all, in many families, dual incomes, uh, racing around to get kids to their different activities, of course, when they're younger. And I think when kids start to present with anxiety, stress, depression, etc., I think sometimes we, as parents, um, are too quick to say, well, let's go to the doctor and see what's wrong. And in some cases, that's perfectly logical. But I think sometimes we, go, we choose to go down that path because it's easier for us as parents with busy lives and many responsibilities to prescribe that, that drug. Um, so I think parents need to do a better job of being involved with what are their kids interacting with on a daily basis, which kind of brings us back to social media. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a silver bullet. I think, I think being open and honest about the potential dangers and pitfalls um, of interacting with those types of technologies is a conversation that, that quite frankly, should be had early. They're all tools. And we use a lot of wonderful technology to make our lives, you know, infinitely easier, uh, whether it's shopping or finding out directions to go somewhere. And I think that's great. But we also know that the average time spent by a lot of folks, adults included, is not minutes a day. It's multiple hours a day, literally sitting there scrolling, reading feedback, both good and bad, monitoring how many likes you received or Mm, retweets, mm -hmm. errors. And those are, those are addictions. You know, the chemical that's released by that feedback provides a temporary high uh, and in some cases a low. And I think there's a pretty good argument to be made that for most younger kids, perhaps 20 and under 25, there's different stats out there that they just don't know how to process that. Yep. Yeah. Their, their brain, their brains are still developing. Exactly. And so I think making sure your children have an outlet, whether it's physical activity or music or, um, group sport participation, whatever it might be is so important to give them a disconnect and a break from the virtual virtual world and participate mm-hmm. more in the real world, where you're having these types of conversations, reading body language, understanding intent of mm-hmm. words, not interpreting words or phrases based upon a tweet or a text or whatever it might be. This was a big uh, challenge for Ryan. You know, when he started to go down a path of contemplating his future and what he wanted to do, um, Sometimes in relation to what some of his other peer group was doing, again, whether that was real or, or perceived realities on their posts, that, that did trigger him personally, uh, I know for a fact. And so he started to harbor feelings of perhaps insecurity. Am I not doing enough? And, you know, when somebody starts to slide down that path, all it takes is a few poor outcomes, not getting a job, losing a a significant other. And um, that can be a powerful moment for people when they're already living in that world of of fight or flight, and then they have a significant loss. And we saw it on more than one occasion with Ryan um, that required 
um, significant parental intervention to try to walk him off where he was and get him back towards reality and, and refocused on those things that he did have in his yeah. real life that were working in his favor at that time. And it's a constant struggle. Well, I'm going to take a moment and talk about a partner of the podcast that knows all about the multimodality approach that we've been talking about. Folks, if you or someone you love might have an issue with drinking, drugs, mental illness, or anger management, it's time to get in touch with my friends at DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers here in Northern Illinois. It's time to set up an assessment. You've got nothing to lose. Depending on your situation, the assessment could be free. My friend Ron Parch and his team use their 25 years of experience to build an individualized treatment plan that's confidential and effective. They approach people in distress with respect, and I cannot stress enough how important that is to feel respected when you're going through something. DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers has offices in Sycamore, Plano, and Crystal Lake. Check out DUISycamore.com or call 815-895-9000 and set up an evaluation today. Write this down, folks. Call 815-895-9000, visit DUISycamore.com, or you can email duibhs at gmail.com. All right, so you mentioned before social media is a tool. Yes, social media is a tool. Text messages are a tool. You know what? So is a table saw. Yes, it's great. And I, I wouldn't let my kids go down to the basement and use a table saw for two or three hours un, un, unsupervised. So, so yeah. Being being an active presence with them is is so crucial. You know, just last night, you know, I, I waved before to the guitars. Like we we have a jam session most evenings, and like last night, you talk about a tool. We got done. You know, they're they're young, so they're still learning just like strumming patterns. So last night, we were strumming along to uh to the Who, and after that, I was like, "Do you want to see Keith Moon play drums?" That's right. to me. Look, I'll die For on sure. this hill. Keith Moon, greatest drummer of all time. Uh, John Bonham, it, it, a very close second. And look, I, I'm a guy who I most often will gravitate toward passion over form and technique. So Neil Pert, if people are ready to argue, uh, Neil Pert, the technique, amazing unmatched but give me keith moon and john bottom because it's just the 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 unbridled energy the reckless abandon behind the kit but i wanted him to see john ent whistles fingers flying on the bass like I, you know i wanted them to be wowed by that and i i couldn't have had that as a kid if, if we didn't like buy the vhs tape or betamax <laughs> sure now i uh i i know this is gonna be kind of, I know this is going to be a tricky territory, so bear with me. You mentioned that, you know, Ryan had a diagnosis and that, and that he was on medications and that you guys were doing everything in your power to, to build in support and, and other means of, of living his best life. Uh, before he moved to Missouri, where we're getting into dangerous territory here is that and this is where, like, I, I, I'm not a counselor. I just play one on a podcast. You said before, you're not an expert. But lived experience is so crucial. And I think folks who are listening to this are going to be able to relate. They're grieving. And they might be looking for some comfort. Did 
were there any red flags that you wish that you had seen? Because I mean, what we're, what we're getting into here is survivor guilt. It's, it's people placing blame on themselves, which is, it just perpetuates that cycle of pain. What advice can you give to folks who are stuck in that cycle? Were, were there things that you could have seen and have you, what have you done in order to realize that it is not your fault and that you did what, and you did what you could? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, there were flags. I won't call them red flags. And when I say there were flags at the time, I would never have associated those flags with the outcome. Mm-hmm. I think as parents, you know, having lived through similar life stages, there are certain expectations that there will be ups and downs, of course, with with all kids and how they interact, how they deal with school, sports, friends, other adults, etc. So there were moments where there were changes in um, how Ryan responded to a situation. That certainly raised an eyebrow. Uh, breaking up with a girlfriend uh, is an example. Not doing well in school is another. Um, so there's easier to identify the negative reactions that mm-hmm. are easier to identify. In hindsight, um, where I think I wish we would have spent more time considering is, is in the moments where you're with family birthday party, holiday, and, you know, somebody like Ryan with similar struggles would participate in that group setting for a minute or two, uh, make his presence known, crack a joke, beautiful smile, which he had, and then he would just kind of drift off, you know, into the family room to go spend time with, with the pets, as an example. And I think for most parents, you don't think a lot about that. Yeah. But... In hindsight, what that was, and again, in my opinion, not being a clinician, is that he was very good with the surface level discussions. But as soon as somebody tried to pivot or transition to, so how's school going? How's your job? What do you want to be? What do you want to do? You know, for somebody struggling with conditions similar to what Ryan was dealing with, those are difficult, pointed, and very personal questions that he was extremely uncomfortable uh, diving into. And so what he would do is he would navigate away from that environment before those types of questions started to present themselves. And I wish we could have been better about identifying those moments. You know, we all get caught up at family gatherings. There are folks we haven't seen as well for a while. Um, So I think, if I'm being honest, that is a little bit of a miss from us Um, certainly earlier on in his struggles. I think towards the end, it was a little bit more evident that he, he wasn't comfortable in those environments. And, you know, listen, we live in a very, we live in a hyper competitive world where siblings, friends are, are in his mind at the time doing better or have a path that they're following or an idea about what we want to do. And so when he didn't have that or a couple of doors closed, it was, um, powerfully impactful to how he was able to process that loss, at least in his mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once, 
once kids of his age, again, my opinion, start to go down that hole and they're on meds and they're struggling sleeping because of all of the anxieties they're harboring, it's a deadly recipe, or I should say it can be a deadly recipe. And the lack of sleep and the sleep challenges he had really for the last couple of years of his time with us, they were profound. I mean, there were nights where he'd be up till two or three, couldn't sleep, and then he had a very difficult time waking up. And so I think identifying their interactions uh, in a group setting, I think identifying and paying attention to things like sleep, how well he's adhering to his care plans from a pharmacy perspective, specifically in this example. You know, when, when they self-prescribe how they take their own medications, either because of how it makes them feel or they don't want to be tired if they're going skateboarding with a bunch of friends. In that moment, it feels like the right decision, but there's, there's, there's ramifications to those decisions. And so his constant state of flux, um, I think from how he chose to take his medications was a real challenge. I talked to a number of his clinicians after the fact, including some local pharmacies down there, and um, universally they kind of echoed the same thing. He wasn't consistent. He had a lot of questions. He didn't follow up on those questions. And, of course, as a dad, um, I should say as a parent, and as somebody in the industry, to hear that that disconnect occurred for somebody that was clearly struggling so much, those are the conversations that really hurt. Because you could make an argument that had we been more in tune, had we played a more aggressive, direct role um, with somebody like Ryan, you know, could we have prevented the outcome or could we have delayed the outcome? You know, those are questions that, that we and, and other folks like us will have for the rest of our lives. So um, I, I think just being hyper aware, being, you know, in the face of your children, there's no questions that should be not asked. Mm -hmm. um, they might not like, they might not like, like the questions, but I will tell you that them just knowing that we're paying attention and interested because we're being loving, caring, and empathetic, that's tremendously powerful. And that can prevent, you know, rash decisions from being made in the moment, just that they yeah. feel that connection and that love. And so I, th I think those are all very important. Uh, I can't reiterate enough, though, uh, in our opinion, the sleep piece was vitally important. The body needs sleep to heal, to process. And um, it was clearly an area he struggled with. And the medications, at least from my perspective, had a huge impact on that. So as folks consider the use of medications, which I'm for in certain situations, uh, specifically in the moment challenges to get them passed, I think that's wonderful. But you referenced uh, therapy and counseling earlier. Hugely important. You have to talk about these issues. Specifically, kids need to talk about these issues so they don't feel alone or like they're sitting in a cellar by themselves. And, and hopefully in time with therapy and um, activity and other interests that gets them to redirect from those immediate feelings, um, you can get them on a better path. But I, I think a busy society... The constant social media in, in their faces, the use of medications, in my opinion, far too much, the lack of exercise, uh, too much blue screen time. Those are all recipes for a very 
challenging set of statistics that could be following if we're not careful as a society. Now, to piggyback on your point before, uh, you know, as we ask those questions, we might not get the response that we want. You know, the person we're talking to could withdraw. They could, you know, get very upset mm -hmm. and explode. Yep. But but that but that can't end the conversation. No. Right. Then it's the follow up. And, and, and that can lead to somebody saying, you know what? OK, I I can't talk to mom and dad about this, but I got to talk to somebody. Or eventually they might talk to mom and dad about it. You know, it's, 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 it's planting the seed. That's where parents need to be parents, Chris. So we should anticipate that for folks struggling with situations similar to what Ryan did, that they're always going to present a rosy, everything's fine, don't worry, I got this, leave me alone mentality. Um, because that's what they're good at. They're chameleons, right? They don't want others to feel the pain that they're going through because they are caring and empathetic by nature in most cases. Um, but if you do get that explosive reaction to a question that they think or know hits a little bit too close to home, that's when as a parent, you have to muster your energy and not escalate with them, mm -hmm. but find a way to diffuse it. Say, okay, I hear, I hear what you're saying. If you don't want to talk to you know, mom or I, that's fine. But have you considered talking to the therapist route or some of your best friends? Are they struggling with some, you know, similar situations? Do you have other outlets? But just them knowing that you're hearing them, that you're not following them in that escalation, which just causes conflict and causes mm -hmm. them to, to cases to step away or to hide, which can be very dangerous, um, but that you're hearing them. And that's really from our um, experience with regard to Ryan. They want to be heard. They want to know you're there. Um, even if you can't provide an immediate solution to the pain and discomfort that they're feeling. Uh, let's talk Lynn health for a moment before we wrap up. Was this, uh, was this chicken or egg? Was, was Lynn health the product of your experience? Uh, uh, describe to me, first of all, describe to me what, what Lynn health is for our listeners and how it came to be. Yeah. So I'll start with how I was involved with Lynn. So I uh, have worked with a number of, uh, of amazing people over the years. I got a call uh, last December or December of 2020 uh, with an idea from a very good friend of mine um, who also has, we all have family and friends, right, that are struggling with multiple chronic conditions and the difficulties that they continue to experience trying to navigate an ecosystem that is just not built for them. And so I got a call from our current CEO, Rick Abbott, again, very good friend, with an idea about how we can better align the ecosystem to work better for those battling things like behavioral health, diabetes, heart disease, MSK-related issues, obesity, et cetera. And so our idea was very simple, to, to create a human-centric organization that cared for all chronic conditions and put the member in the middle of that experience. So the challenge today is somebody that has two or three chronic conditions also has, in many cases, a primary care doctor and two, three, or four specialists, and a health plan, and a provider system that they interact with, and in many cases, multiple vendor solutions. And those vendor solutions today are aligned such that they recognize the member for the condition they're burdened with. So a vendor might only deal with diabetes or might only deal with MSK-related issues. And for folks struggling with multiple conditions, including, in many cases, behavioral health, the last thing they're good at 
is navigating that ecosystem, knowing who to call when. And so we created what we call a care circle. This is a, a virtual multidisciplinary clinical team that is really built around and wrapped around each of these members that we onboard. And that relationship is made by what we call a care partner. And that care partner is a nurse by training uh, with behavioral health specialty uh, to really start to develop and build trust with each of these members so that we can help them better work through their conditions by developing care plans for each of them and also navigating their current existing brick and mortar providers that they use on a regular basis. Literally holding their hand, being at their side when they need us 24-7, providing not just care but also integrating them and acting as an enhancement of their current uh, health plan or healthcare ecosystem model. And so by removing all of that administrative burden, we believe and we're, we've started to see through the pilot that we rolled out free to the marketplace that we're in fact having an impact on these members. So now they can reach out to our team, make one call, understand where they are in their own health plan deductible exposure area. They can ask questions on what specialist should I consider seeing within Sugar Grove, Illinois that has better quality and better pricing metrics. Um, if they need or have questions on uh, virtual urgent care, virtual behavioral health. So if they call at two in the morning on a Saturday and they have extreme anxiety, that care partner can in real time warm hand off them right to a virtual care behavioral health visit and address the issue or the concern or the challenge that member is having in real time. A lot of vendors today will field that call and say, we recognized you, outreached us. We'll give you a call back Monday morning during normal business hours. And as you and I both know, Chris, for many people by then, in some situations, <laughs> yeah. it can be too late. Yep. And so we want people to prioritize their own health and well-being for the first time. You know, it's not just the navigation of the ecosystem. It's their own family needs, bringing kids to and from. So if we come across a member that has social determinant of health struggles, food scarcity, utility bill challenges, housing, transportation, which is still an issue for about 20 to 25% of the U.S. adult population today, we can actually help source, coordinate, and schedule them to be physically picked up at their home and then brought to the office so that they are prioritizing their own health and well-being. I love what you're doing with Lynn Health. I'm so incredibly grateful for you coming on here and celebrating Ryan for what you do with you know, the, the various walks and, and the other organizations that you're involved with. I, I can't commend you and your family enough for what you're doing. No, those are kind words, Chris, and certainly I appreciate that. And having the ability to have the dialogue on this type of platform with you is tremendously valuable to us. If, if it helps one other person um, one other parent that's struggling perhaps with similar situations, um, in the end, it's all worth it. And, and Chris, I'll, I'll also say that if there are parents out there um, with concerns or challenges, and my wife and I make this offer to everybody, um, if folks wanted to reach out, uh, shoot me an email, um, more than happy uh, to have a conversation and share perhaps more personally, what we saw, what we dealt with, um, because it's, it's, it can be a very difficult road for parents and for the families going through a situation like that. Well, that, well, that's incredibly generous of you. And you know, it, it's incredibly noble what you guys do. So let's, let's catch up soon. Let's, let's pick a race together. Let's get the Huskies together. Let's do it, man. Let's get after it this year. Sounds good, Chris. Thank you so much for the time and the opportunity. I wish your family the best. Cheers. You too, Steve. Take care. 
All right, folks, hug those who you love. Watch out for red flags. But I love what Steve said is just be ever present. Be engaged in each other's lives so that you can see those light pink flags, right? It's not always some glaring cry for help that serves as an opportunity to help people. And if we're there for each other, we'll notice when something's just a little bit off. Okay, with that, thank you so much to Steve for hopping on the podcast with me. Folks, as he said, make sure you reach out to him. Look in the episode description for his email and let him know if you need somebody to talk to. Okay, thanks again to Steve. Thanks to you all for being here. Till I catch you next time, remember that if it feels like things are falling apart outside this space right here, we're always coming together, folks. I love you so much. We'll catch up soon. Peace.